Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at discounttire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. The marriage rate has come down 65% since 1970. There are multiple factors behind this decrease, but one of them is what we might call the poor branding that surrounds marriage in the modern day. From all corners of our culture and from both ends of the ideological spectrum come messages that marriage is an outdated institution, that it hinders financial success and personal fulfillment, and that it's even unimportant when it comes to raising kids. My guest would say that these ideas about marriage are very wrong, and he doesn't come at it from an emotionally driven perspective, but from what's borne out by the data. Dr. Brad Wilcox is a sociologist who heads the nonpartisan National Marriage Project at the University of Virginia, which studies marriage and family life. He's also the author of Get Married. Today on the show, Brad discusses the latest research on marriage and how it belies the common narratives around the institution. We dig into the popular myths around marriage and how it not only boosts your finances, but predicts happiness in life better than any other factor. Brad also shares the five pillars of marriage that happy couples embrace. After the show's over, check out our show notes at awim.is slash marriage. All right, Brad Wilcox, welcome back to the show. Brett, it's great to be here. So you are a sociologist who spends a lot of time researching and writing about marriage, particularly the benefits of marriage and family life. You got a new book out called Get Married, and you start off the book saying that the impetus behind this book is to counter what you see as an anti-marriage narrative in popular culture. What are some examples of this narrative that you're seeing? Yeah, Brett, you know, it's actually funny when I was finishing up kind of the last minute touches on the book, one article came across my Twitter screen. It was trending on Twitter. It was an article in Bloomberg that said women who stay single and don't have kids are getting richer. And so the headline was kind of giving the impression that, you know, steering clear of marriage and motherhood was kind of the way to go for women financially, but also gave us lots of stories of single women who were childless kind of living their best life. And so I think both the financial story told in this story in Bloomberg and the emotional story being told were kind of encouraging them to steer clear of uh, marriage and motherhood for a bunch of reasons. We've seen articles like The Case Against Marriage published in The Atlantic, articles like Divorce Can Be an Act of Radical Self-Love published recently in The New York Times. So these are just kind of some of the examples that we see in you know, in the media, for instance, that give us, you know, what I would call kind of a profoundly anti-nuptial or anti-marriage message. You kind of think about the pop culture more generally and, you know, mainstream television shows and movies, I think, which you often see in everything from, you know, that show Friends <laughs> back in the day to a lot of the Chicago, like, you know, series on NBC is a kind of message that your 20s are your years to sort of have fun and focus on career. And then maybe as you kind of approach 30 or 35, you would begin to think about settling down and getting married and having kids. But there's kind of an implicit message too, I think in the, you know, in the pop culture and certain precincts in the elite culture that are encouraging young adults to kind of just postpone marriage or forego marriage and focus instead on career and having fun in your free time. So that's also, I think, part and parcel of what I'm, I'm worried about in terms of giving people kind of the wrong idea. Well, you mentioned some of these articles in these uh, magazines. They focused on women staying single and the benefits of that. But you're also seeing the same sort of thing about men. Men shouldn't get married. Yeah. So what's striking here, I think, is when I began this project, I was thinking about being in conversation primarily with kind of more elite voices on the left that tend to dominate a lot of mainstream media and academia and pop culture to some extent. But now we're getting this from the online right as well. And Pearl Davis is one figure that's got a big following online. She 
has said that marriage is a death sentence for men. And then you have, of course, Andrew Tate, who's kind of a very big voice in the manosphere, who's also arguing that marriage has no ROI, you know, no return on investment for men. He says, quote, the problem is there is zero advantage to marriage in the Western world for a man. And then he goes on to say, it's very common that women divorce their husbands. You know, so what the left has been kind of telling us is that really marriage and motherhood can be a bad deal for women. We're now hearing though from kind of the opposite end of the the ideological spectrum that marriage is a bad deal for guys. And of course, the common takeaway, sadly, I would say, you know, for young adults is that maybe I should just kind of steer clear of opening my heart to, uh, to love, to marriage and family. And as a sociologist, you, you actually research what happens when people get married. And we're going to talk about, actually, there's a lot of benefits when you get married and settle down. But one thing you talk about, what both of these strains of thought have in common, these anti-marriage, anti-family life strains of thought, whether it's coming from the left or the right, is that they both have what you call a Midas view of life. What do you mean by the Midas view of life? So, Brett, I got to give all credit to my wife. You know, I was, you know, asking her like, "What? Well, how can I kind of think about us? You know, some kind of fable or a story that would kind of convey the way in which people can become too attached to, you know, work or money or whatever else." And she's like, "What about you know the King Midas story?" And of course, it's great, you know, a great example. I've updated the Midas story for a you know public lecture on the book, but. The idea here is that people are thinking that, you know, they should be sort of searching for gold and trying to build their own brand. You know, it's about education, money, and above all, career. We've got a lot of data from Pew, especially telling us that Americans, even parents, Brett, unfortunately, are prioritizing for their children, you know, education and career over marriage down the road. It's just, you know, very short-sighted. I think they're going to be really, you know, uh, regretting that emphasis when they're 75 years old and there are no grandkids on the horizon. So we see though, but again, in a lot of data from Pew that Americans think that money and education, especially work are the way to go. So a recent Pew study found that 71% of Americans thought that having a job or a career they can enjoy is the path to fulfillment. Only 23% said that being married was the way to go. So it just gives you a sense of this Midas mindset where all the action is kind of in, in in work and money and building your own brand. And the sort of idea is that investing in marriage and family is, you know, the wrong path. And you should instead kind of be free, free of all the encumbrances that, you know, come from settling down, putting a ring on it. Yeah. So the idea out there, both in the culture and in the media, is that marriage will hurt your financial life. Like that's the message that's out there. But that's that actually isn't the case. Yeah. So there's, I mean, so that, you know, that Bloomberg headline was just completely bananas. It was so, so wrong. I mean, there was, um, they were relying upon data of just, you know, taken from singles, uh, you know, a fed study on singles. And somehow they got to this conclusion that somehow that marriage is a bad thing for women. But what we actually see is that women who are married and men, of course, too, are more likely to be flourishing financially. In fact, in their 50s, both women and men have about 10 times the assets, you know, heading towards retirement compared to their single peers. So, you know, ironically, both Andrew Tate and Bloomberg should be discounted for folks who are worrying about financial security or prosperity because for the average American, the path to prosperity tends to run through marriage and not away from it. But, you know, my point, of course, is that there's a lot more to life than money. And so what we see is that marriage, uh, again, more than career, is a much stronger predictor of Americans' happiness in ways I think that a lot of people would be surprised by. So what's the state of marriage today in America? Are people marrying less? So, yeah. So, I mean, I've got bad news in the report and good news. And, and the good news, as I was kind of just hinting at, is that when it comes to uh, loneliness, when it comes to meaning, when it comes to happiness, Americans who are married, both men and women are markedly happier. They're less lonely. They report more meaningful lives, especially if they have children in the picture when it comes to meaning. That's kind of part of the good <laughs> the good news. But the bad news, Brett, is that we've seen the marriage rate come down by about 65% since 1970. And what that means practically for young adults today, like in their 20s, is we're projecting that about one in three of them will never marry. 
And we've never been in this territory where so many Americans will be permanent bachelors and permanent bachelorettes. And that's, you know, cause for concern for me just because, again, what we see is that for ordinary Americans, you know, typically, they're just more likely to be thriving if they have, you know, co-pilot to uh, travel through life with. So one thing you talk about in the book is that while there's been a big decrease in marriage overall, and for a lot of people, marriage isn't thriving, your research has found that there are four groups where marriage is still thriving. What are those four groups? Yeah. In terms of, again, the good news, we, we do kind of see some groups in America today who are generally speaking, you know, flourishing in their marriages, who, who are more likely to get married, stay married often and be happily married. And those four groups are Asian Americans, religious Americans, I call them the faithful in the book, college-educated Americans, I call them strivers in the book, folks going to have more of that focus long-term, work, profession, career, et cetera. And then the fourth group is is conservatives. And to be frank, Brett, I, I didn't anticipate having conservatives as a separate category. I thought we kind of crunched the numbers. I'd find that you know, being Asian-American, being religious, being college-educated, that these sort of three groups in their own ways would be kind of more likely to be married in America today, among other things. But I found in crunching the numbers that when you included ideology in the statistics, you still found that there's a net effect, a unique effect of being conservative, ideologically speaking, that boosted your odds of being married and also being happily married, even controlling for factors like religion. So that's why I have four groups in the book. And each of those four groups, Brett, a majority of them, you know, if, if you compare them to kind of the alternative groups, are married. So for instance, a majority of college-educated Americans, 18 to 55, are married. Only a minority today of less-educated working-class and poor Americans are married. A majority of conservatives are married. Only a minority of moderates and liberals are married. Asian Americans and whites are typically majority married. And then Black and Hispanic Americans, only a minority of them are married. Okay. And then for the, the ideology aspect, like how do you define like what is conservative? So there's just on social surveys, like the general social survey, which we use a lot for this book project, people are just asked, you know, are you like very liberal, liberal, you know, moderate, conservative, very conservative. And we also had a question like that in a YouGov survey that we did for the book of about 2000 husbands and wives. And so we were just going to categorize people as liberal or conservative. Gotcha. And we found that conservatives are more likely to, again, to be married and to be happily married compared to moderates and liberals. Now, what's interesting about the ideology story there is it's a little bit complicated. So it turns out that very liberal Americans, and I did a piece in the New York Times on this a little bit while ago, are relatively happier, looking at women. So very liberal women are relatively happier than sort of ordinary wives in America, like in that sort of like, you know, in the liberal to moderate category. But conservative and very conservative women are even happier. So there's what I call a J curve in in marital happiness um, when it comes to women's marital happiness. And where, again, the very liberal women are a little bit happier than kind of the norm. And then the conservative and very conservative women are even are even happier. We see a similar trend. Actually, it's fascinating. Uh, looking at a new Gallup study that we published in Family Studies a few months ago, when it comes to teens' reports of the quality of their parent-child relationship. So teens in very liberal households are a little bit happier than kind of the norm. And then teens in conservative, especially very conservative homes, are even happier. And it's just kind of surprising. And this Gallup study suggests that maybe the story there is that conservative parents tend to be a bit more authoritative, you know, have clearer rules and expectations and consequences for their kids. And that actually teens are more likely to thrive in a context where, you know, maybe there's a clear curfew, you know, maybe there are clearer consequences for, you know, getting your chores done, or your homework done in conservative homes. And that actually, you know, those kinds of boundaries, as long as they're coupled with an affectionate and engaged style, tend to work out well for, for kids. Can these demographics cross over? So for example, yes. I, I imagine, you know, college educated yes. or highly educated tend to be, you know, I don't know if the survey says that the research shows this tend to be more liberal. Is that true? So yeah, there, there are cross-cutting. Yeah, that's a great question. There are cross-cutting pressures here and then they're overlapping. So I talked to a conservative, religious, Indian American, you know, well-educated guy for the book. So he would kind of be, <laughs> you know, checking all the boxes and he and his wife are, are doing well. And they've got three kids who've done really well as well. So there are examples like that. And then we also see 
a lot of the discussion around marriage is focused on sort of class and education. Kind of the assumption has been that college-educated Americans are more likely to be killing it when it comes to marriage. And my, you know, my friend and, and colleague Richard Reeves, who's been at Brookings, he's got a new group focusing on boys and men. He's kind of made the argument that sort of like college-educated Americans have like these marriage-minded, you know, sort of norms and ideas, but they're also kind of more progressive on gender. And so that kind of is like the, for him, like the sweet spot. But what I actually find in my own research is that when you separate out the college-educated Americans who are conservative from those who are moderate and liberal, it's the ones who are conservative who are most likely to be stably married and happily married. So it kind of calls into question some of Richard's ideas about how this is all playing out. So the bottom line is it's sort of the most educated, most religious, and most conservative couples in America are the ones who are most likely to be stably married and happily married. Well, it's similar to what Richard Reeves was saying. An argument that I've heard about marriage is that it all comes down to class and money, right? So if you have lots of money and you're upper to middle class, you're going to do fine. If you're poor, you're not going to do fine. What does your research show? Yeah. So I'm saying there's both a cultural story and a class story. And so, you know, I think like Richard and I would tell very similar stories, but kind of the general class story. And there's just having more education and more money is one big reason why we are seeing that more educated Americans are much more likely to be getting married and staying married and to be reasonably happy married. But I think where my sort of story diverges from the one that Richard Reeves would tell us is that Culturally, what we're seeing is that more religious and more conservative couples, Asian American couples, are more likely to be getting married and staying married oftentimes and are happily married. And so I think what they have is oftentimes a deeper sense of commitment to marriage as an institution and to kind of like the norms of marriage, norms like fidelity and kind of not using the D word when things are tough in your marriage, obviously divorce. And they're also more likely to be kind of surrounded by peers who value marriage as well. And we know that that's a big predictor of succeeding in marriage too. If you're surrounded by people who value marriage and are living more what I call family first, you know, lifestyles, that's going to, you know, other things being equal, increase your odds of success. So again, the bottom line here is that both culture and class are important in understanding marriage today. And so folks who have both you know, more income, more education, but also kind of an appreciation for a lot of those classic norms and values around marriage are also more likely to be succeeding at marriage today. So uh, you spend a lot of time in the book countering what you think are some of the myths that are keeping young people from marrying or not investing enough in their marriage. And one myth is what you call the flying solo myth. What is the flying solo myth? So there's just kind of this idea that, again, kind of being free of entanglements, encumbrances, you know, family obligations is the path to happiness. That, you know, we want to kind of keep our options open, keep our choices before us. We want to focus on our 20s, on just having a good time and really investing in our career. And I talked to a number of women and men for the book who were in their mid-30s, basically, and, you know, regretting the fact that they had spent their 20s focusing more on just career and, and fun. And now they're unmarried and they're these two women in the Rocky Mountain West and a man in the D.C. far suburbs are, um, you know, really unmoored in some important ways. They're, they're kind of struggling with loneliness and a sense of meaninglessness and just wishing that they had made different choices in their 20s. And I should say like, okay, well, so what? I, I, found, I found two people, you know, in America who kind of, you know, conform to my priors. Well, the, the important point to make here actually is that we're, we're seeing a decline in happiness in America. And this decline is concentrated among unmarried Americans. And the biggest factor driving the drop in happiness in America, according to a recent study from the University of Chicago, is the declining rate of marriage in America. So a simple way to sort of say this is sort of like less marriage equals more unhappiness for the country at large. And I think our younger adults should just be a lot more skeptical of the messages they're getting about the importance of you know freedom and choice and building your own brand and steering clear of entanglements of the opposite sex because the people who are able to actually get married and build decent marriages are just flourishing on so many more dimensions than their peers who are not. Yeah. And a point you make in the book is that the flying solo idea, it could be great if you have lots of money and you can travel the world, but for average Americans, like you Probably not. You're not going to be able to do all these things because you don't have access to money. So if you really want flourishing and happiness, 
your best bet would be to get married. Correct. Right. And there, and I, I profile a professional from, I think, New York city who was kind of like living the life as a single 30 something, you know, high flying guy. And he was perfectly happy, you know, but as you were saying, there are a lot of Americans who are not traveling the world, not making a lot of money and not, you know, killing it at work and without the benefit of a spouse and family life can be pretty hard. But again, what's interesting too, and about my, you know, the guy that I profile in the outer suburbs of Washington, D.C. is that he has graduate training. He has a good job. He owns his own home. He's making six figures. And, you know, he basically says to me as I interviewed him, he says, you know, I've got degrees in my wall. I've got accomplishments and certificates, but it doesn't mean anything in the end. I have to get up every day and look in the mirror and realize I'm alone. I have nobody. Okay. So for this guy, the Midas mindset is not worked out. He's in his mid thirties and he is not happy. He's not a happy camper. Now, again, I know plenty of single folks who are doing great, but I'm just saying on average, single Americans are more likely to be struggling and married Americans are more likely to be flourishing. And that average story, unfortunately, Brett is not being told enough in the media and certainly on social media as well. Uh, so we mentioned earlier, kind of referenced it, your research that you've done has shown that married people tend to have more money. They're happier, they're more fulfilled. Is this a matter of causation or correlation? Does marriage make you happier or do happier people or people who have those attributes that can lead to a flourishing life tend to get married more often? Yeah, that's, I think, really the the killer question, right? And so, yeah, the smart critics of the kind of argument that I'm making in the academy and in the media would talk about what we call a selection effect, where the kinds of people who are selecting into marriage are just different. They're, you know, more educated, they're more affluent, they're more may have better social skills, right? And so they would say it's Brad is confusing correlation with causation here. Yes, married people are happier, they're more affluent, but that's because <laughs> they're already happier and more affluent to begin with. So like Matt Brunick, for instance, a progressive says married people are less impoverished because people who are not impoverished are more likely to get married. He says, with marriage, you have an institution that attracts and retains more economically secure and stable people, not an institution that creates them. So this is like a great summary of the sort of selection perspective. But what Matt is missing, though, is just there's just a ton of research on the way in which marriage is an institution that tends to transform our lives. It doesn't just sort of like vacuum up the elites and, and, and just put them together. Now, there's some of that obviously happening now. But we know, for instance, of a study in Minnesota looking at identical twins and fraternal twins, guys, and the twins who got married earned about 26% more than their twins who did not get married. So kind of giving us a clear sense, it's probably something about marriage per se that is helping to make men, and we see other evidence in the score too when it comes to men and marriage and work, married men work harder, they work longer hours, they're more strategic in their job search, they're less likely to be fired. So these are all the kinds of things that would help us to understand why marriage per se can be transformational. And then on the happiness front, there's work done by the economists, Sean Grover and John Halliwell, and they controlled for happiness prior to marriage and then tracked happiness after people got married and after other people did not get married, kind of comparing them over time. And they still found, quote, a causal effect on happiness at all stages of the marriage from prenuptial bliss to marriages of long duration, unquote. And they found the biggest sort of happiness premium was in midlife when people were in their late 40s and 50s. And we often see adult happiness at its nadir. But, and again, like, why is it that marriage is happiness inducing? I think the point is that we are, as Aristotle said, social animals. And so money and status end up being less important for us than our friendships and our family relationships, which give us opportunities to connect with others, to be with and for others. And I think importantly enough to really to, to care for others and for both women and men, I think. It's important not just to be cared for, but to have opportunities to care for others. It gives our lives, certainly I'll speak personally for a second. I mean, you know, caring for my wife and children is the most meaningful thing that I get to do. So I, I just think people are not factoring in the ways that marriage and family can be so generative on so many fronts for ordinary women and men. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. 
This iconic vehicle has been redefined with a thoroughly modern design. The exterior has been reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing, and the interior is built with robust materials and integrity. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. Durability has been tested to the extreme. Cargo capacity means more room for your gear. And there's been powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display and award-winning infotainment system that keeps you connected. Innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering, and the Defender is ready for a wide range of adventures. The Defender family features two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further, the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. That's LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom, made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom, made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. All right, so if you're like me, you've probably signed up for a whole bunch of stuff that has a recurring monthly fee. Subscriptions to newsletters, subscriptions to services that you use online, uh, could be a streaming service, something like that. You sign up for it and then you forget about it. And then every month you're getting charged and charged and charged and they just all add up and you have a hard time trying to figure out where did I sign up for this? I don't know where this is coming from. Well, let me tell you, there's an app that can help you with that. It's called Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. I had a chance to use Rocket Money and it works. You connect your account to it and then it goes through your accounts and helps you find those recurring subscription fees that maybe you forgot about and then you can cancel them and save yourself a bit of money each month. Stop wasting money in things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com manliness. That's rocketmoney.com slash manliness, rocketmoney.com slash manliness. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the Masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of known in negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the Masterclass on Negotiation with Chris Voss. And now back to the show. Well, couldn't you get these same benefits just by cohabitating, like companionship? Yeah, great question. Yeah. So I think if you kind of do like just a, an immediate look at like, you know, people's happiness, cohabiting and, and married, often not, not a big difference, right? But the problem is the cohabitation is much less committed. And so what that means in practice is that couples who are cohabiting just don't go the distance, you know, nearly as much as those who are married. So you have situations, you know, like a former neighbor of mine where she, you know, invested five years of her life from ages like 28 to 33 in, in her cohabiting partner. And then he just, you know, she kind of made it clear she wanted to get married and have kids. And he was like, well, I'm just not, I'm not ready for that, you know? And so he was gone. And, <laughs> um, 
you know, that was pretty traumatic, right? Because they hadn't, you know, established a kind of joint level of commitment heading into the relationship. And so her kind of happiness that she'd enjoyed for probably substantial share of that relationship, you know, disappeared and, and turned out to be a fairly, you know, traumatic ending. Now, of course, divorce can happen too, but I'm just sort of saying that on average, marriage is markedly, you know, more stable than cohabitation. And that's one reason why I talk about, you know, getting married rather than getting together. Yeah. So, so just getting married, it adds more stakes to the relationship, I guess. You take it more serious. So when I'm talking about this to my students, because I think the cohabitation piece is like the most surprising thing that we talk about in my class at the University of Virginia, sort of how marriage and cohabitation are different. I'm just thinking about kind of the terms of entry, right? Or how couples enter into these two different you know, relationship states. When it comes to cohabitation, what you see is that oftentimes couples can't even agree on the day when they begin cohabiting. Like you have like one partner will kind of bring some things over for the weekend, maybe leave a, you know, some clothes, like a toothbrush, you know, whatever. And then some more stuff like a week later and then like move in all their stuff, you know, a month later or whatever, two months later. But it's never been like, there wasn't like a kind of discreet moment where obviously with a wedding, it's pretty, <laughs> pretty clear when it happens. But more importantly, just imagine the social context that these two things are taking place in. So with cohabitation, you have like, there's no assembled multitude, right? Of friends and family in that apartment hallway. Uh, there's no music playing in the background. There are no vows being exchanged. You bring your your gear into your partner's apartment for the first time or whatever for the second or third time. Um, by contrast with the wedding, obviously, everything is kind of scripted. It's a ceremony. It's ritualized. And human beings actually really, you know, we, we tend to endow things with more meaning when we do them in a ritualized communal context. And especially when we make public vows, you know, in a communal context. So that's just kind of gives you some sense of how marriage and cohabitation are, are really different things. Okay. So flying solo, for most people, getting married is probably your best bet for happiness, fulfillment, and even economic stability. Another myth you explore that might be preventing people from investing too much in their marriage is the myth of family diversity. What do you mean by that? Yeah. So, you know, particularly kind of in my academic world, there are a lot of folks who would kind of argue that the family isn't in any way getting weaker or marriage isn't declining. It's just the family is changing and that we should kind of embrace family diversity, kind of a wide range of family structures and family approaches. And that marriage per se doesn't really matter. What really matters for kids when it comes to flourishing is, you know, love and, and also money. You know, basically families have enough love in the household and who have you know decent income supply are going to be doing just perfectly for instance there was an article in the atlantic where there was a professor saying that all of our research points to the fact that it's the quality of the relationship that matters and the handling of communication and conflict and the number of people in the household is not really the key or philip cohen a professor at maryland said if people grow up with single mothers who have adequate income they do fine on average what we find is they do have a lot of challenges from the lack of resources, but family structure per se is not as big a factor. So again, the idea here is that money matters, love matter, but marriage doesn't matter per se. And what these, I think, perspectives don't really acknowledge is that, yes, love matters, yes, money matters, but kids in intact married households are much more likely to be flourishing on any number of fronts. They're about twice as likely to graduate from college compared to kids from non-intact families. Boys are about twice as likely to end up in prison or in jail compared to their peers from intact families if they're in a non-intact family. Girls and boys in non-intact families are about 50% more likely to be sad as eighth graders. So that's what the sort of facts are. And I think one of the most striking things that I discovered in looking at this data with my colleague, Dr. Wendy Wang, is that young men today are more likely to go to prison or jail than they are to graduate from college if they're raised in a non-intact family. By contrast, what we see is that for boys who are raised in intact families, only 9% of them end up in prison or jail and 38% of them are graduating from college. So that, that was for me, like when it comes to kids, like just that was the sort of like Wow. Like, you know, for boys who don't have the benefit of their own married parents, more likely to end up incarcerated. Um, whereas for boys who are benefiting from both their married parents in the household, much more likely to attend and graduate from college. So you're saying there's a myth that's out there that 
well, it doesn't really matter if we get married or if we get divorced or if there's just a single parent in the picture. It's not a big deal. Kids will be fine. And what you're saying is, well, maybe not. So yeah, and two things to, to be clear about. One is that I was raised by a single mom and obviously many kids go on to do just perfectly fine without the benefit of married parents. We can think of prominent examples like Barack Obama and Jeff Bezos, who at least obviously professionally have done extremely well. So I'm not saying that kind of coming from a non-intact household is a death sense. I'm just sort of saying that on average, kids are more likely to flourish when they have the benefit of their unmarried parents. And the other interesting piece about this is that the proponents of family diversity say it's about really what matters for kids is love and money. What they do not acknowledge though, Brett, is that on average, kids who are being raised by intact married parents have access to more attention and affection from their you know, their married parents, and they have access to a heck of a lot more money than kids in other family situations. So even on the love and money front, what we're seeing is on average, of course, we know that there are dysfunctional, intact married families out there, but the, on average, kids are more likely to get the love and money they need to flourish when they're being raised by their own married parents. Well, in a point you make in the book, you point out there's a hypocrisy you see. There's you know, people out there in academia and the media that say, well, you know, it doesn't matter what your family looks like. You just get divorced, whatever. The kids are going to be fine. You're going to be fine. But then you look at how those people are living their lives. They're typically, they're married and they're living in an intact family. Yeah. I've got a piece coming out in the Atlantic soon talking about how our elites often talk left and walk right. And the story there basically is that I think it's become kind of fashionable in a variety of ways to sort of articulate your support for family diversity and to kind of discount the importance of marriage or even to attack it in, in certain circles in academia and the media and other precincts of our culture. But it's also, I think, a fact that, you know, prudentially it makes sense to get married and stay married. And so that ends up being the path that a lot of our elites take because they recognize at some level that it's the best thing for them and for their kids. So another thing that seems to be holding people back from getting married, and this is a new one. All right. So before people weren't getting married, they'd say, well, you know, I'll miss out on opportunities for my career. I need to make money. I want to enjoy myself, whatever. The one thing you're seeing now, I've been seeing more reports of is political polarization. What's going on there? So my colleague Lyman Stone and I did a piece for The Atlantic kind of talking about the growing number of young women who are moving left and the growing number of young men are moving right, although there's more women moving left than men moving right, but it's creating a situation where there are many more liberal women than there are liberal men and a bit more conservative men than there are conservative women. And that's kind of leading to a gap where we would estimate about one in five young adults can't marry someone or can't date someone who is sort of on the same page with them ideologically. So that's a problem because as I'm arguing in the book, marriage is generally a good thing for young adults and for the society at large. This political polarization is one more factor making it harder for young adults to marry. Anything we can do about that? Well, I think one thing to do is just to recognize that what matters here for I think marital success is being on the same page, either you know religiously or in terms of like some core commitments, including how you want to do family and work. So if you meet someone who's you know not in the same page as you politically, but who shares basically either your faith or your kind of broader worldview in terms of how you want to do work and family, then I would say you know consider moving forward. But on the other hand, if if you're kind of not just sort of politically at odds with one another, but also have pretty different views on things like religion or on how you want to, how many, you know, if you want to have kids, how you want to raise them, all that kind of stuff. Those are really big warning signs. So I think you have to sort of distinguish between politics proper and then other things that would really bear on the, on the warp and move of organizing a family. And unfortunately I have seen friends, you know, in my twenties who kind of grew ideologically apart and then got divorced. So I've seen that play out, you know, in my own social circle. Uh, so something else you do in this book is you look at what families or couples that are having thriving marriages, thriving family life do on a day-to-day basis, 
to make them thriving. And you talk about, you mentioned earlier, they typically have a family first approach to marriage. What does that look like on a day-to-day basis? Yeah. So I argue that one of the challenges facing all of us, I think in this culture today is that sometimes we can think about marriage as kind of like the soulmate thing. It's like, I'm going to find this perfect match. We're going to have this intense romantic and maybe sexual connection. We're going to fit like, you know, this perfect, uh, we're going to have a perfect fit and she's going to understand me. I'm going to understand her, you know, perfectly. And there's going to be very little friction and a lot of, you know, passion and fulfillment and happiness pretty much all the time. Right. That's sort of like the soulmate idea just in a nutshell. And yet, obviously, once you're married and in a relationship with someone, you know, you discover that she's not perfect and you're not perfect. And it's often extremely difficult to get, get along, you know, in some days or some weeks, some months, whatever. And by contrast, I think people recognize, realize that marriage is about more than just an emotional connection, more than just a feeling. It's about establishing a life together, a family together, having kids, if you can, raising kids together, you know, being there for your kin, you know, for your parents, your wife's parents, doing things together as a family, you know, going trips, going to the park, going to the basketball game, whatever it is that, you know, your family does, going hunting for some, you know, going to the beach for others, you know, all these kind of family things end up being, you know, also important. Uh, financial security is also part and parcel of kind of a family first approach to marriage. And so people kind of have like a richer view of like the many different goods that marriage tends to facilitate or foster are kind of pursuing what I would call like a more family first or more institutional approach to marriage. And that of course is more stable than just kind of one that based on feelings, the soulmate approach. And I think what people don't realize is it's often happier as well, because you're able to appreciate that your spouse and your marriage and your family are about a number of different goods not just an intense romantic connection. And so even if like you're not necessarily firing in all cylinders on the romantic side, but at some point in your marriage, you recognize, oh, my husband's a great father or oh, my wife's a great mother, for instance. And that is a source of satisfaction for you and for your relationship. So what I find is there's a slight edge to that the folks of this more family first model enjoy in marital quality. And then also they're less likely to be thinking about divorce compared to folks who have more of a feelings-based soulmate approach to married life. And you get nitty gritty with this stuff, like how these couples navigate, you know, sex, parenthood responsibilities, chores. I mean, what does that look like? So what I'm also arguing too, is that the, the sort of what I call the masters of marriage tend to be more likely to embrace what I call the five pillars of marriage. And these are five C's. One is communion, a sense of communion in their marriage. One is proper appreciation of the role of children in marriage. If they have kids, the third C is commitment. The fourth C is cash. The fifth C is community. And so just to kind of take, for instance, the communion piece, what I find is the couples who have regular date nights to try to maintain that sense of romance and that emotional connection are more likely to be flourishing both in terms of marital happiness, but also in terms of sexual satisfaction. So not surprisingly, like, you know, if, if you'd like to have a healthy sexual life, it's important to keep the romance alive in your marriage. And so doing, you know, fun and different and you know regular date nights, which can be challenging when you've got kids, as my wife and I do, still is, is important. Try to figure out that piece, I would say. But also in terms of community, I talked to you about a we before me approach to life rather than a me first approach. And one example I give is couples who have shared checking accounts are doing better, both in terms of stability, but also marital quality compared to couples who have separate accounts and more of that me first approach to money. So that's communion. Uh, Commitment is among other things, prioritizing the well-being of your spouse and your family, and then also concretely being attentive to the importance of fidelity. So that means, you know, kind of steering clear of attractive alternatives, both in the real world and now today in the virtual world who might obviously distract your attention and your affections away from your spouse. And when it comes to divorce, not putting the D word in a conversation when you're having an argument or there's some problem in your marriage. You know, most couples have problems at some point in their marriage. And I think couples who just keep divorce uh, off, you know, out of the picture are more readily able to handle those challenges and, and overcome them. And then the community piece, you know, basically, Again, if you are surrounding yourself with people who are, you know, whether you're secular or religious, but, you know, people who are like intentional about being good spouses and being good parents, you're more likely to, to thrive. And yet I do find that folks who are religious are more likely to be succeeding, you know, on that front because you find that couples who are going to church, especially together or temple or synagogue, whatever, 
are more likely to be spending time with their kids, to be capable of forgiving their spouse, to be maintaining, surprisingly, I think to some extent, a more vibrant sexual life than couples who are not part of a religious community. You do your research with the eye of you know, suggesting public policy, and you have some public policy recommendations at the end of your book. But then I think it was in a recent article, or it might have been a tweet, you talked about how there's research showing, and even in these Nordic countries that have very pro-family public policy, people still aren't getting married and having kids. So you know, basically, public policy isn't enough. You have to change the culture about marriage and family life. So how do you how do you do that? That's that's a that's a tough that's a tough hill to climb. So, you know, I want to be clear here. I do think public policy is helpful, and I think we could do more to sort of promote in our schools what's called the success sequence, which among other things talks about the value of marriage to our, our kids in high school, public high schools. I think we could get rid of the marriage penalty that ends up penalizing marriage for a lot of working class families across America. I think we could have a more generous child tax credit that would help people who are particularly working in middle-class families who are kind of struggling financially to raise the next generation, kind of have an easier time of it. So there are some policies that I think would be helpful in terms of making marriage more financially and culturally, you know, appealing, attractive, and attainable, particularly again for working class and middle-class Americans. But I think at the end of the day, we have to recognize and realize that unless the culture changes, we're just going to see it a continuing decline in marriage and, and fertility. And the reason I say it is because we're already seeing that in the Nordic countries, like for instance, Finland, where they have an incredible suite, you know, collection of great family policies, childcare and parental leave and child allowances, arguably one of the best suite of family policies in the world. You know, like if you have a high degree of confidence in public policy to help families and yet in Finland, you know, marriage and coupling and fertility are way down in recent years. And I think what's happening in Finland is also happening here in the US, but just not, not as quite yet as pronounced. And that is, it's a combination, I think, of a couple of things. One is the minus mindset, which you've talked about, focusing on education, work, and money more than other things. A kind of a focus on having a good time, fun, staying, you know, free of encumbrances, keeping your individual more individualistic mindset among a lot of 20-somethings and even 30-somethings is part of the problem as well. And then two, I think, you know, uh, we're seeing men losing ground, doing less well relative to the women in their lives in education, work, and other domains. And so I think women are just more skeptical about investing in a relationship, a marriage, and having kids when the men in their lives don't, you know, from their perspective, kind of meet the bar of what a spouse or a partner or a parent should be up for. So there, there's more going on, but I just, the point is that there's just sort of a, a series of cultural shifts that are kind of unfolding across the developed world that are both devaluing family and the sacrifices that being a spouse and a parent require of us. And they're kind of elevating a more individualistic, a kind of more live for the moment ethos that in the short term can be attractive and appealing, but in the long term spells not just demographic <laughs> demographic problems, but but I think more fundamentally a very bleak and lonely and meaningless life. Not for everybody, of course, um, but for a growing share of of people who are going to be kinless as they head into mid and late life. Well, yeah. Speaking of sort of this culture around parenthood, so let's say someone does get married. You, you're seeing a lot of people who are getting married. It's like I don't, we don't want to have kids. But in like the surveys that you've done, do people give reasons for why they don't want to have kids? Well, there are different theories about this. Everything from like the cost of parenthood to like the environment to I think probably more importantly, kind of, I just want to like do my own thing. And we've seen obviously dink videos on TikTok where these couples who are actually married, but they're like enjoying sleeping in on Saturday morning, they say, and they're enjoying traveling to Florida on a regular basis, they say, and they're, you know, just sort of saying that they're living the life, you know, it's, it's, it's the life, right. You know, that they think that they have without children. And I'm just like, okay, let's check back with you in 20, 20 years or in, in 40 years and see how you're doing, you know, because I just can't even imagine to be blunt, you know, my life without my children. I mean, you know, every night I've got a, teenage daughter hunts me down and she'll give me a hug or a kiss on, on the forehead. I mean, that's just like, 
wow, you know, like yeah. it's a nice way to end the night. And yes, kids are incredibly expensive and challenging and all that kind of stuff. But I mean, just the meaning, the joy that, you know, kids can bring to your life is amazing. And I just feel sad for people who are deliberately closing their their hearts to having children. But to be more empirical for a second again, too, what's interesting about the research is that we saw some evidence back before 2000 that parents were less happy than childless Americans. But today, it's no longer true. I published a piece in Deseret News you may have seen just showing that given some newer survey data, parents, particularly married parents, are happier than childless Americans. And there's no group of happier Americans age 18 to 55, and that's the sort of age focus of my book, than married mothers and married fathers compared to their peers who are single and or childless. So that's often lost in our public discussions and a lot of the social media commentary that for all of the hard things that being a mother and a father, you know, demand of us, we do see that compared to their peers, you know, it's sort of like Churchill's point, like, yeah, democracy is like, you know, I'm paraphrasing, obviously, it's like, you know, is flawed. But compared to the alternatives, it's much better. I think the same thing is true of parenthood. Yeah, compa- you know, being a parent can be really hard and challenging and frustrating and, you know, hair pulling inducing. But compared to the alternative, I think it often ends up being pretty, pretty good. Yeah, and something that I don't think has helped with this is that in the popular culture, people just tend to talk about the negatives of being a parent. They just talk about the the hair pulling stuff when your kids are driving you bonkers. And they really don't talk about the great, the great stuff about being a parent. Like being a dad is awesome. Whenever things in life feel flimsy and meaningless, my family is the thing that feels the most real to me. I agree. Well, Brad, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? So I've got a new website, bradwilcox.com. Familystudies.org is a good place to go as well. And then the National Marriage Week is kind of rolling out from uh, February 7th to 14th this year. And they've got a lot of resources for people looking for you know, things about marriage, also tips to improve your marriage. Um, I, there are plenty of obviously couples out there who are struggling. And so if you're struggling, I would encourage you to go to the National Marriage Week's website for some ideas about how you can strengthen your, your relationship as you head towards Valentine's Day. Fantastic. Well, Brad Wilcox, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much, Brett. My guest today was Brad Wilcox. He's the author of the book, Get Married. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. Check out our show notes at aom.is slash marriage. We find links to resources. We delve deeper into this topic, including a link to another survey that just came out by Gallup that once again affirmed that married people are happier. We've also included a link to an article by one of Brad's colleagues and former AOM podcast guest, Lyman Stone, on how the chance of divorce still doesn't negate this happiness premium for men. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles that we've written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you've done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to get your view off the podcast or Spotify. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think will get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay. Reminding you to not listen to the AOM Podcast, but put what you've heard into action. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.